Rafer? Yes. You're a man. I am. And sometimes when you're a man, you just got to do what you got to do, right? That's that's correct. A man's got to do what a man's got to do from that's what I understand. That's the secret. You've hit upon the secret, the great secret of manhood. <laughs> Kristen, now that you understand that about us, you'll understand everything. But when a man's got to do what a man's got to do, what's that got to doing doing? Well, it depends on what it depends on what's happening. Um, you know, if it's uh, if you're trying to win, you know, at a sport, then you've got to you've got to put it all on the line. You've got to. You've got to. <laughs> do you got to take it to the next level? You got to. You got to take it to the next level. <laughs> do you have to push the limits. You do. Um, you, sometimes you, do. You, <laughs> do you have to? Do whatever it takes. That's right. To protect your family. Oh, now, see, oh, now, if, now, if you're talking about doing whatever it takes to protect your family, then you got to cross the line. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Sometimes you gotta just show women how it's done. Yeah, that's in that's, the bedroom and in other situations. Well, that I know plenty about, <laughs> Krista. <laughs> There's so much you got to do when you're a man. <laughs> a man's got to do what a man has got to do. Hey, and a woman has to do what she has to do. Uh, we'll talk about both these things on uh, this edition of Movie Date, will we not? <laughs> yes, we will. We're going to learn a lot about men and women in this week's podcast. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Kristen Meinzer, producer for The Takeaway. And I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday, and this is Movie Day. What makes a man? Is it the power in his hands? Is it his quest for glory? Well, Rafer, we know that a man's got to do a lot of things. That's let's, right. Let's start off talking about what a man's got to do when his child is abducted. All right. Uh, so you want to talk about prisoners. Let's, let's go with prisoners first. This is a... Uh, a release with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman and Paul Dano, the star-studded cast there. Um, the story basically is uh, two families uh, having uh, dinner on Thanksgiving Day in uh, rural Pennsylvania, and their little girls uh, both go missing. Uh, they vanish, um, and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays Detective Loki, who is called in to investigate. Um, he hits upon a suspect, uh, a mentally impaired man named Alex, uh, played by Paul Dano, um, there's no evidence, though. They have to let him go. And so Hugh Jackman, who plays the father of one of the girls, his name is Keller Dover, he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. Here's a clip. Mr. Dover, I understand this is an incredibly hard time, but I have every uniformed police officer in this state looking for Anna. I don't understand what any of this means. They said he ran. They said he tried to get away. I don't understand why he would try to run away. I hear what you're saying. I'm not crossing anybody off my list. Just let me do my job. Now, that's definitely a case of sometimes a man doing what a man has to do. That's when correct. When you're taking things into your own hands, taking that's, matters into your own hands. That's correct. So let's talk a little bit about if all the men are doing what they have to do in this movie. We also, <laughs> okay. have, we also have Jake Gyllenhaal, the police investigator, who's doing what a man has to do to uphold the law. That's to, right. And he really is focused. He's succeeded yes. in... Every single investigation. That's in what his someone life. says. Yes. Yes. So he's doing what he has to do. You also have uh, Terrence Howard, who's the father of the uh, Terrence Howard and, and Viola Davis play the parents of the other little girl who vanishes. And uh, you know, you could say about Terrence Howard, um, you know, he is trying to hold down the fort. 
uh, take care of his family, take care of his wife. He, ha- he like Keller, has another uh, older child. Um, and Terrence Howard is a guy who is trying to keep everything together uh, during this uh, clearly difficult uh, time. He's being reasonable because a man has to be reasonable. That's, that's Women correct. Women frequently are just so irrational. And so you need to be reasonable if you're a man. <laughs> that's right. Well, right? you're talking about Maria, Maria Bello, who, who plays uh, Keller Dover's <laughs> wife, who uh, essentially just crumples into a, into a, into a, a, a bedsheet full Ooh, of pills. Sleeping pills. Yeah. Oh, my blanket. Uh, Viola Davis, uh, slight, slightly stronger character, I would say. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, now, I'm going to uh, – there's a, a matter we're going to have to discuss here. I think some people might consider this a spoiler, but it is in the trailers. So I think it is fair game. I think it's fair game also. And I also think that what's happening in that scene in the trailer, which we're going to discuss, um, is only about 40 minutes into the movie. The movie's, yeah. the movie's over two and a half hours yep. long. So. Two hours and 33 minutes, that yes. movie. Yeah. Yes, and so considering the length of the movie and considering this happens in the first 40 minutes, I think it's fair game. So I say go for it, Rafer. Okay, so what happens, of course, is that uh, Keller, Hugh Jackman, decides, uh, well, Alex, uh, this uh, mentally impaired guy, I am positive this guy uh, either took my daughters or knows where they are, uh, knows where these girls are, so uh, I'm going to take him prisoner, and he kidnaps Alex, uh, holds him up in a, an abandoned property, and um, I think it's fair to say tortures him, uh, trying to extort information. Um, it's it really a, made me think of Zero Dark Thirty. Well, Did I it think, make you think of that too? This whole idea of if you are doing it for the right reasons, then maybe you're justified in torturing, and this is what you've decided in your mind, and – that's how you keep doing this and you have to tell yourself this isn't even a human being. This is a monster. It really, to me, it made me think about Abu Ghraib. It made me yep. think of yeah, all of those things. Yeah. yeah, all those things. Yeah, that, that, that political subtext I think is, is one of the interesting things about this movie, uh, especially because um, I think it's interesting in kind of a coded way they're implying to you that Keller is a conservative or at least kind of a right-winger type. Um, yeah, there, they, there are references to his religious beliefs. There's he's a hunter. He he's has a, a blue-collar job. He's a survivalist. He, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, for, one of the first things you hear him tell his, uh, his older uh, child, his son, is, you know, Al- always be ready. Uh, you know, no matter what it is, you know, disaster, war, no matter what it is, be ready. And he's got this basement full of rope and lye and batteries and water and tools. Uh, this interesting scene when... Jake Gyllenhaal, the detective, uh, comes down into his basement for the first time, and you kind of see a little look across his face when he's looking looking around at this storehouse of uh, supplies that, you know, you you can – it's a testament, I think, to Jake Gyllenhaal's acting when you can see that he's thinking, you know – what we'd all be thinking, possible terrorist, militia? What is this you guy? Are crazy. What's, right, what's this guy into? <laughs> Why all the bags of lie? Um, it's, a, it's a good scene. And I think all that is interesting. And I think there is uh, – you could relate that a little bit to, uh, you know, the George Bush uh, – George W. Bush and his famous run-up to the war and, and uh, all these things he said in his speeches like, I'm the decider. There's something about uh, this character, Keller Dover. He is absolutely 100 percent positively, possibly tragically sure of himself. He has no doubts whatsoever about what he's doing. And that's interesting. There's, 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 some, there's a parallel to be drawn there as well. I personally, though, don't think 
and I, and I have not read any reviews, but I bet you that critics are going to jump on this. I don't think that political subtext should be overemphasized in this movie. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I'm, I, I don't mean to say that this is a super political movie to no, me, but it's not. The idea of what torture is, when it's useful, whether or not it should ever be enlisted. I think that's just already part of the public dialogue and has been yep. for quite a while. So it's hard not to think about politics when you're thinking about torture. Yeah. And when the political becomes personal, as in this case. And so, anywho, there's more to this movie than torture, by the way. That's of only course. like in the first 40 right. minutes that we first get introduced to that. The movie takes lots of twists and turns and it explores the whole idea of what being a prisoner is in Many different ways from sure. different angles, prisoners of our own ideas, of our minds, who's been a prisoner, who's not a prisoner, and so on. And I'm just going to conclude, because I don't want to give any more spoilers here. Sure. I'm going to conclude saying, I thought this was a terrific date. You did. It really, really held my interest the whole time. I didn't expect that. For a movie that's two hours and 33 minutes long, I thought I was going to get bored. I was yeah. really interested. And there's only one moment that I considered, as I call it on the podcast, the Scooby-Doo moment. There's only one <laughs> okay. of those. Yes, I know the moments. I, I, and, I, and I hate those Scooby-Doo moments. Well, yeah. if it weren't for you nasty kids. Yep, I know. You nosy kids, blah, 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 blah. But if it weren't for that, I, I would say this is an almost perfect movie. I really thought it was great. Yeah, I, I, I think I would agree with you on, on most levels. I think uh, what I liked about this movie was that every single part of it is so well done. I think the acting is fantastic. Everybody in it is so good. Um, I think it's beautifully directed, really skillfully directed by a guy named, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce his French-Canadian name, Denis Villeneuve, I think is how you pronounce his name. The cinematography is great. Roger Deakins, the Coen Brothers cinematographer. The movie Mm. looks beautiful. I I do think at bottom, this is just another kind of serial killer police procedural movie um but what make what elevates it into the realm of let's say like a silence of the lambs or a seven or a, a zodiac is just that it's so well crafted and it's mm. intelligent and it's and it's so well made that i was willing to overlook a lot of cliches <laughs> a, a, a lot a lot of cliches and I, but i was willing to overlook that because it was such a good serious kind of grown up adult entertainment and i liked it for that so i would say it was a very very good date oh wow we agreed yeah i'm glad good I'm glad. i did not expect you to agree with me on that i i mentioned the movie to you and there was a look on your face hmm. that said to me maybe you were playing me but the look on your face was like this movie sucked <laughs> oh interesting i don't remember that i don't well i don't remember that I'm, I'm so I'm so I think you were playing me. I think you are a mystery <laughs> wrapped in a riddle. That's what you are, Ray for Guzman. Mm. Like all men. Well, let's see if we can uh if we'll agree uh on Rush, uh Ron Howard's uh, latest movie about Formula 1 racing legends. Kristen, tell us give us give us the summary. So, we have two real life race car drivers in the 1970s, Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. James Hunt is fabulous and sexy. He's got a mane of blonde hair. He sleeps with women, just every woman he meets he yes. sleeps with. And he is not afraid to go fast. And then we have Nicky Lauda, who is his main competitor on the racetrack, who is very into the science of racing, into yes. the method. He's very uh, educated as far as what he puts into it. He does research. He does all sorts of things to be a fast driver, but none of it's as as much from his gut as it is from right. Hunt. So uh, Chris Hemsworth plays James Hunt. Daniel Brühl, is that how you pronounce his I name? Think so. Plays Nikki Lauda. And uh, here's a clip. 
James, is there anything you'd like to add? If Nicky is being tricky and getting a kicky out of playing mind games, <laughs> then fine, I'm flattered. But the fact is, momentum is with me. I've never felt better. And I fully expect the next press conference we all have will be with me as well, champion. Rafer, what do you think about this? Well, I, um, I liked this movie, actually. Um, I think for <laughs> I thought you would. I thought you would. <laughs> now wait. Now wait. Um, I think this. I, I think one of the great things about this weekend is it is uh, is it kind of is signaling the start of high class movie season. I feel like even even the even the fluffy movies are starting to look and feel really good. And, and really, this is definitely a fluffy movie. This is definitely a fluffy movie. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, I think uh, a couple things. Great performance from Chris Hemsworth. I thought. I thought he was just perfect as James Hunt. You can you you can tell that he is wealthy and entitled and just comfortable in his skin. Because why wouldn't you be when you look like that and you got all the money in the world and you're a race car driver? And uh, he they've made him up great. He looks fantastic. He's got this awesome sort of high shag '70s hairdo. I love when they uh, when they give him uh, his his uh, his new jumpsuit and they've put a uh, uh, like an emblem, like an embroidered emblem on it that says "Sex Breakfast of Champions," which is such a great '70s, you know, if this van's a rockin' kind of bumper sticker moment. I love that, um, and I thought Daniel Bruhl was really good as Nicky Lauda. Um, I think he he's a very he's a he's a really humorless. You know, joyless character. Oh gosh, and he has the worst social skills. Terrible social skills. He'll just skills. insult you left and right, and I don't even know if he means to. He means to a lot of the time. He, he likes insulting he, people. Yeah, he means to. He doesn't care. And also, you can insult him, and he's just completely unfazed. He doesn't care at all. He just takes everything complete face value. Tell him he looks like a rat. He's like, I don't mind it. I don't mind it when you call me a rat. <laughs> yes, I know I look like a rat. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> complete. Just got no emotions whatsoever. And what's great about him is. That actually becomes like the film's most dependable source of humor. He he becomes the film's funniest character. I, I love it's it's kind of a downer moment, but I, I kind of laugh when he takes his wife on his, on their honeymoon in Ibiza and he turns to her and he says, Happiness is the enemy. I just, <laughs> I just cracked me up. He's I think he's really good. And I I thought this movie worked really well as a sort of grasshopper and the ant fable, you know, which, which is the right way to live, you know, enjoy your life and make the most of it or buckle down, work hard and, and, and survive the, survive the hardships, you know, which, which is the best way to be? I thought that was really good. The racing scenes to me, not that exciting. I agree with you about the race scenes. Yeah. I mean, what, what did, and it what might just be like about that it? there are a few things. So Chris Hemsworth's character, um, James Hunt, very early on in the movie says, why do women like race car drivers so much? It's not because they like the idea of grown men driving around in circles 50 times. Right. And I almost stood up in the in, in the theater and clapped and said, yes, that is correct. That is correct. We do not bravo, care about bravo, James. Well stated, sir. <laughs> Say that again. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. I, I don't care about guys driving around in circles 50 times in a row. I just don't care. And as you and I have discussed, Rafer, I, I don't actually consider driving a sport. Yes. It's like it's driving. You're driving a car. I okay, know. good for you. And so that, that that part just didn't grasp me. And and the way it was shot, I'm sure somebody would say technically it was a feat to shoot that kind of race in the way it was shot. I didn't notice it. I didn't care. You know, the thing I cared yeah. more about were the relationships and the characters. But even those I thought were not done as well as they should have been done. Yeah. I, I felt there were a lot of cliches. There were... 
you know, one of the biggest things that I just can't stand in a movie like this is let's just have women there to either sleep with or on screen very briefly to show some sort of narrative arc in their past, but not develop it enough where I care about the fact that you fell in love or you lost this woman or especially Olivia Wilde's character, who is James Hunt's wife Mm -hmm. in the movie. I think we're supposed to be feeling something very deep at one point about the difficulties of that relationship, but I don't see any difficulties. I see the meat, and then I see, like... Yeah, well, he, I mean, the, 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 I bought um, the uh, Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda, when he falls in love with, with his wife, I thought that was actually nicely done, and I, mm. and I, 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 enjoy, I enjoyed their relationship, and I, I believed in it. That one, I believed slightly more. The one with Olivia Wilde, it's like, that, that may as well have not even been in the movie. Just, yeah. you know what? We don't need to see that. All we need to do is see James Hunt sleep with another woman. <laughs> and supposedly in real life, he slept with like 5,000 women. And something else that I think would have made the movie more interesting, in addition to his sleeping with 5,000 women, but yeah. something else I think would have been more interesting would be, and I don't, I don't think you have to adhere to all the facts in making a movie True. that could make it more or less interesting to try and be fact-driven. But one of the things is that in real life, the two were roommates for a while, and that's how they met. Who? Nick Lauda and uh, Hunt? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, That's so they had a relationship like before they became rivals. Ah. Uh, and I think that would have made it a more interesting movie. Oh, that could have been. I mean, they, they establish a certain rapport, though. Through, I mean, they, they, are not, um, they are not bitter enemies. No. Uh, they are rivals, but they are not enemies. And I, and I have to say, I, the screenwriter is Peter Morgan, who wrote Frost Nixon. The, uh, I loved the, Frost Nixon. I loved, I loved that, too. It was also directed by Ron Howard. And um, I think... In its way, it's a really thoughtful script, and I think um, I like. I was thinking how, like in any other movie, either one of these characters could be the villain, right? You've got the, the sort of the, the 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 blonde, blue-eyed, rich kid, and then you've got this kind of the you know, rat. This, yeah, the rat, right? This <laughs> this emotion, this frozen robot, you know, and he's the world champion. He's he's really arguably the better driver. Either one of these guys could be the villain, but in a way. They both turn out to be heroes in their own way. They both turn out to be the heroes of these stories, and they teach each other a lot. I know that's kind of a corny thing to say, but I think the film pulls it off pretty pretty well. I, I think it's trying to be a tribute to rivalry, a tribute to the idea of friendly competition. Yeah. It just didn't fully hold my heart or my interest. Huh. Yeah. And, well, I, you know, I will say this. I, I think there was probably some, uh, some Oscar hopes uh, pinned on this movie. I doubt that, mm-hmm. but I but I do think um, that it's a pretty good, solid film, and uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good date. Mm, I thought it was a mediocre date. Mediocre, mediocre date. date. Tell us about what is coming next. In a moment, we're going to return with something a little bit more serious, yes. a documentary focusing not on what a man has to do, but sometimes what a woman has to do. So we'll be back in a moment with that. After Tiller is a new documentary released this week, and the title refers to George Tiller, a doctor who performed late-term abortions at a clinic in Wichita, Kansas, until he was killed by a pro-life gunman in 2009. Uh, After Tiller invites us to spend time with four doctors who continued to perform late-term abortions, and they are, in fact, the only four doctors left in the United States who publicly do so. With us are the directors, Lana Wilson and Martha Shane. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Lana, I'm going to start with you uh, because I know you. Uh, we, yes. uh, we were acquainted uh, several years ago when you were the programmer for the Furman Film Festival in uh, Great Neck, Long Island. 
and you were telling me that you were going to leave that position to make a documentary. Yes. Uh, you had these projects in mind. And what I remember is that you didn't tell me what the, what, the, what the documentary was. And so my question for you is, were you playing your cards close to the vest or did you just simply <laughs> not know at the time? You know, I, I knew at the time because it was the idea for this movie that made me decide to leave that job and, like, I'm really going to do this. I think it was finding this subject that I felt was so important, like someone had to do it. So I had the idea, and, you know, it's a tough subject. I just met you, Rafer, so I didn't know <laughs> where you stood. Good point, good it's, point. It's a hard subject to bring up in social settings sometimes. I mean, Martha and I have found that sometimes we're at a party, they say, oh, what do you do? We're making a documentary. What's the documentary about? And we tell them, and then they're like, I have to go get a drink now. You know, it's like... <laughs> It's hard. So I, I'm very – and I think I've become less and less cautious as we move forward with the film. But also at first, when it's your first film, it's like you don't know what's going to happen. It could be a complete disaster. You know, I prefer to keep the expectations really low. And I didn't really talk about it that much until we were like halfway in. And so how did the, how did the idea for the project come to you? Was it a news story yeah. you read, someone you spoke yeah. to? It, it was the news story, really just the fact that this man had been killed in church because he was an abortion doctor. And I was struck by the fact that, so he's religious, but he's the number one target of the anti-abortion movement. That's surprising. And then thinking he'd been shot once before in the 90s, you know, and he went back yeah. to work the next day, which seemed crazy. So I just thought, what an unusual personality. What would motivate this man? And then realizing that this wasn't really going to be covered by anyone. And then I started to think, someone's got to be making this Dr. Tiller documentary. I wonder what filmmakers are making the Dr. Tiller documentary. And then I realized, like, no one was. And then thought, actually, wouldn't it be better to be a fly on the wall in the present-day lives of the doctors who are doing this work now, make it more of a verite film? And I was like, that's so exciting. I guess no one else is doing this. And I'd always thought, fantasized about becoming a filmmaker. And someone told me, you know, the only thing stopping you from becoming a filmmaker is making a film. And I was like, oh, you're right. And luckily I had this filmmaker friend, Martha, who we went to college together. And she actually knew how to make a movie. All right. So then I asked her if she'd work with me on it. And it was this perfect collaboration. Now, how did you, I mean, you said it's hard to talk about this at some parties when you're first starting out. I imagine it's even harder to talk to these doctors. How do you get the doctors to trust you? There are only four of them left. All of them have hits on them. They've been shot at. They've had their uh, property burned down to the ground. And they, they live in fear of being killed all the time. So how do you get these four doctors in America to trust you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we got the two male doctors on board first. And the way we did it was just by flying out to meet them. We sent them packages of sort of our vision for the film. And then we just went out and met them. And, you know, not many people are going to say no to sort of just like coffee and a few minutes of chat. (laughs) And so but as soon as we got to their clinics, um, I think both of them just immediately, you know, understood this idea that, you know, if they don't tell their stories, then there's just this vacuum of silence around them. And it's filled with the anti-abortion people who want to vilify them and really have successfully vilified them for years. So I think they liked this idea of being able to tell their own stories in their own words. So they got on board, you know, they were they had already been public figures to a certain extent, so they got on board quickly. The two female doctors actually said absolutely no. They didn't want to be part of the film at all and um, pretty much stuck with that for about a year. Um, oh, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they were in the sort of following Dr. Tiller's footsteps. He never did any interviews at all. He said it's about the patients. It's not about me. But I think once they had a little bit of distance and they um, did a Rachel Maddow show and didn't see any upsurge in threats against them, they began to consider the prospect more seriously. So The, fe- the female doctors, you're saying? The female doctors, yes. That's, that's interesting. Uh, was, there, was there a thought? Did, did the thought go through your mind that you really need to have the female doctors in there and not yeah. just the two males? Yeah, yes. you know, at first it did. We, at first we were planning on just going forward with the male doctors. And I think as soon as we met the female doctors, though, it was like, we really need to get them in here. I mean, they bring in the movie. Each doctor has a sort of different focus in the movie. With Dr. Carhart, we look at the political landscape for late abortion restrictions in different states. With Dr. Hearn, we look at what's the impact this has had on his family and his personal life. Those are the two and, male doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And with the two female doctors... They bring this incredible articulateness and candor about the ethical and moral struggles that go into doing this work and making the incredibly complicated decisions that they make inside these clinics every day. So if I felt to us like it brought this complex dimension to the movie that it wouldn't have otherwise. So thankfully, they agreed to be in in the end. Now, the other people that I, I was really amazed that you were able to get to talk very candidly in this movie were the women who are actually facing this decision. How did you talk with them about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, that was the most unknown factor. I think whenever you go in to make a verite documentary, you're just hoping that people will be interested and willing to participate. But we spent a lot of time just sort of waiting in the clinic to find a patient who was interested in sharing their story. Um the counselors would just explain to the patients as soon as they came in, these are the fil- these filmmakers, don't worry, they won't film you without your permission. Um, but if you want to go talk to them and learn more, they're over in this corner hiding. Um, and probably about 10% were you know, willing to come talk to us. And then of the people who agreed, I mean, I think that they just agreed to participate because they felt like... It's impossible to understand how people end up in this situation unless people share these stories. None of them ever expected to find themselves in this situation. It's it's not something that you... Um, and many of them, of course, had wanted pregnancies and then had discovered these fetal anomalies really late. So I think they just felt like it would be easier for other women to go through this having heard their stories. So that's why they agreed to participate. It is a stigmatized subject. Mm-hmm. Um, one doctor in the film, I'm going to forget her name, um, gray-haired. Dr. Uh, Robinson. I think that's, I think that's right, uh, who says uh, that she blames the community of Wichita, Kansas, mm-hmm. for the death of Dr. Tiller. And, um, you know, she says she's very clear, not that they pulled the trigger, mm-hmm. but she says that, you know, it was all fine in some ways when people in Wichita, Kansas were coming to him for their abortions and having these things done, but that was all secret. And that was, you know, and then once the tide turned, um, you know, those people were all kind of nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the, the stigmatism of, of this, of, of, of abortion, and I think the stigmatism of teen pregnancy, of an unwanted pregnancy, of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, even in some communities, is mm-hmm. that, does, does that still strike you as a big factor in this debate? Absolutely. I mean, one in three women has had an abortion. But would you know that? I mean, thinking about the women you know, I don't think most people talk about it. Right. Um, And it's a huge deal because if we look at all these anti-abortion restrictions coming into place in all these states, you have to wonder if all the senators voting for anti-abortion restrictions 
knew all the women in their lives, their daughters, their sisters, their mothers, their friends who have had abortions, would they be voting this way? I mean, in some cases, they probably would. In some cases, the hypocrisy is pretty staggering. We heard a story about at Wichita when Dr. Tiller was working there, actually, where an anti-abortion legislator's daughter needed an abortion. And they asked Dr. Tiller if he could have the clinic open on a weekend just to do her abortion completely secretly. Oh, wow. And she was desperate, and he yeah. agreed to do it. And after that, she went right back to picketing outside the clinic. She oh, actually wow. picketed. Wow. And then later, she had another unexpected pregnancy and asked again if he could close the clinic for the weekend to do it secretly. And this time, he said no. I mean, wow. so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I do want to ask one more question. Um, the, we don't get to hear from the other side. We, we, do, we, we do see them, and we see some of their protests. Um, was that intentional on your part? Was it that no one would speak to you, or or why why were those why were those why were the anti-abortion activists, church leaders, politicians, as you're saying, why are they not in the film? I mean, I think you know when we started out to make this film, we felt like what you see on the news, what we're used to seeing, is sort of a pro-choice talking point and then an anti-abortion talking point, and we felt by just focusing on these four doctors and showing really the world from their perspectives that that we could become much more intimately acquainted with them and, and really delve into this issue. And as Lana pointed out, it turned out that they had actually very um, nuanced and like morally complex views of their own work. So yeah. in a way, you see the whole abortion debate reflected in their own views on this subject. But in, in filming the protesters, we ended up just, we wanted to show them the way the doctors see them, which is really just as part of the landscape of their lives. They're mm -hmm. outside the clinic every day. But once you enter the clinic, you really do just completely forget about them. There's so much happening there, so much intense work being done in the clinic that, you know, you just, you just, they don't occur to you. Sure, sure. So in some ways, maybe the, giving, giving these four doctors their voices is uh, a weight on a side of the scale that, that, you know, maybe has already been tipped in the other, in the other direction enough yeah. already. Exactly. There yeah. is such a huge presence in the media already. And we felt like the point of this film was to capture the doctor's perspectives. And their outside is a constant presence buzzing in the background outside the clinics. They're a looming threat. That's how they are in the doctor's lives. They're not engaging in direct dialogue or anything like that. So, Finally, this movie was shot mostly in 2010, 2011, right? Mm -hmm. How have the doctor's practices changed since then? And is there... Um, a new fleet of doctors they're training? I mean, moving ahead here, what we have left when the movie starts, Tiller's been killed. We have four doctors, all of them gray-haired, who are left. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what's changed since then? Yeah, I mean, I think um, for the Albuquerque doctors, it's probably changed the most. They just recently completed training for a new doctor who they're very excited because she's in her 30s. <laughs> and so she just completed a full year of training and f is ready basically to do to be able to work on her own now. Um, and and then at simultaneously where they have that piece of good news, there's also a um, a referendum that's going to happen in November in Albuquerque that's attempting to pass a 20-week abortion ban just for the city of Albuquerque. So they're they're waiting to see what's going to happen with that. But um, it's, you know, a real significant threat to the work that they're doing there. Um, yeah, and Dr. Carr, you know, he continues to travel back and forth between Nebraska and Germantown, Maryland every single week. 
he he operates one of the only two clinics in Nebraska, abortion clinics in Nebraska. So he feels like he has to keep that open, but he also wants to do the later abortions in Maryland. And Dr. Hearn keeps working, too. So I think, you know, they feel like the future of this work, there will always be young doctors who are willing to learn this work, but they're concerned about it remaining legal. We've been talking with Martha Shane and Lana Wilson, the directors of After Tiller, a documentary about the final four doctors left in the United States who still publicly perform late-term abortions. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. All right, Rafer. Before we go today, let's end as we always do with movie trivia. Indeed. Last week's trivia. In honor of Jane Austen and the movie Austen Land, we asked you if you could identify who the screenwriter was for a certain Jane Austen movie. We didn't tell you what the movie was, but we did play this clip. For there is nothing lost that may be found if sought. Shall we continue tomorrow? No, for I must away. Away? Where? That I cannot tell you. It is a secret. So, we asked you, what movie is that? Who is the screenwriter of that? And here is the right answer. Hi, this is Matt from Baltimore, and the answer to your trivia question is the film The Sense and Sensibility... And the screenwriter was Emma Thompson. Nicely done. Well Nicely done, done, Matt. Matt. Thank you so much for calling in, Matt. We had, we had many right answers. Matt was the first one to call in, though. And that is correct. That's Emma Thompson. She actually won an Oscar for being the screenwriter for Sense and Sensibility. That's right. So what is this week's trivia question, Rafer? Well, we've been talking about rush and racing, um, and we decided to uh, see if we, you guys out there could name another famous racing film. Uh, here's a clip. What are you, some kind of nut? Who do you think you are? Dun, dun, dun! I am Captain Chaos. And this, this is my faithful companion, Cato. Say hello, Cato. Slightly less serious take on the subject, <laughs> but that is, that is a racing film. Name that film. If you can do it, give us a call, 5717 Movies. Or, as always, log on to Facebook.com slash Movie Date Podcast. All you want to do is 